thank you for joining me. Um, I'm Anna Edmonds, and I'm a philosopher at University of Michigan. At Michigan, I teach large reasoning and ethics courses. I started thinking that spending some time rethinking the standard university-level ethics and reasoning uh, curriculum would be a really worthwhile cause for EA to get behind. I was asked to give a little primer for, the, for how the community often talks about responding to evidence. So this workshop is going to try to get us up to speed with some of the more fundamental thoughts about how to rationally respond to new information. Scanning down the list of uh, attendees and vocations, I know that we have a really wide range of backgrounds. So this is definitely going to be review to some of you, and it will probably feel new to a lot of you, too. So right now, we all believe a bunch of things, and we had arrived at those beliefs in different ways, some of them through pretty reliable processes. So seeing this lectern right in front of me, quite reliable process. Some of our beliefs we've arrived at through fairly unreliable processes. So if I believe that uh, international trade is always a zero-sum game because of what my father, who is not an economist, taught me growing up, that's not a very reliable belief formation process. We are overly likely to regard our beliefs in a, a binary way, either true or false. Either we believe a thing full stop or we disbelieve that thing full stop. This is a problem that we're going to come back to at the end. But we should and we do often have different levels of confidence attached. So if I asked you right now whether nitrogen is flammable, you might feel less confident than you would about whether Seattle or if you're from the UK, Cardiff, gets precipitation uh, on more than 50 days per year. So call the beliefs that we start with before we go on to get new information. Call those beliefs our priors. And think of what I'm going to talk to you about today as how to update your priors, how to change your beliefs in light of the new information you're going to encounter. So much of being a good reasoner is about responding well to new information, being aware of the priors that we already have, understanding what and how much information we're getting, how it relates to what we already believe. If I believe that adding more teachers and, say, new uniforms will help attendance and school performance, and without changing anything else, we add those teachers, we add the new uniforms, and nothing significant changes. How am I supposed to respond? What pieces of information do I need? What are the ways in which I'm likely to go astray? Call this process of responding to new information by changing our beliefs updating. Bad news, none of us does it very well without training. Plenty of data on just how unreliable we are, even the very high IQ'd amongst us. Good news, there is a formula that specifies correct updating. It's just not very easy to use. So I'm going to show us one that is a little bit easier to use. And let me say a thing about the language that we're using before we go any further. We're going to be talking about hypotheses, evidence, conditionalizing on evidence, priors, updating. And presumably, almost everyone has heard people talk about these things. And it all sounds very scientific. Of course, it is often used in scientific contexts, but it's also describing how we should be interacting with new information all the time in our ordinary, everyday reasoning contexts. So the examples that you're going to see me use, some of them are silly questions that we might be mulling around in the backs of our minds thinking about associated likelihoods. Some of them are questions that are fitting for precise empirical analysis. So to start with, think of H, our hypothesis, as any candidate view or claim or explanation that you're wondering about. Think of E, the evidence that we're going to get, as just some new information, some observation that you have uh, that you come into contact with uh, relevant to thinking about the likelihood of H. Of course, E could be some single observation that you make, or it could be a collection of observations taken together. So thinking more about the bad 
You're not doing very well without training. What's going wrong when we fail to update properly? So one problem is that most of us can't even say precisely what it is to get evidence for a hypothesis, much less how precisely to uh, gauge the strength of that evidence. And we're not usually testing hypotheses, views, explanations randomly. We're considering the ones that we already have, ones that have naturally seemed plausible to us. And sometimes they're ones that we are subtly uh, rooting for. We wish that they would be true. If we don't understand exactly what it is to constitute evidence uh, to begin with, and don't understand how to determine the strength of that evidence, it means that we're going to fail to notice information that isn't exactly what we would expect, given our preferred explanation, or we'll end up underestimating the strength of that observation. Why? Well, because we're on the lookout for the information that confirms the views that we already have. And so we're likely to miss, to proper, fail to properly take into account the information that's going to make our view less likely. An even more basic problem. Even when we're trying to do everything right, many of us don't know what to do. Look at two examples with me. So for the next two questions uh, that we look at, I want you to take 30 seconds or so and think about your answer. If the answer isn't obvious to you right now, which I expect it not to be for many of you, don't work to figure it out just yet. Just see what, in, uh, what answer comes to mind. So here's the setup that I want you to think about. You're looking for your buddy, and a reliable source tells you that, say, this time of the day, on this day of the week, it's 80% likely that your buddy is going to be at the neighborhood pub. Here's what the pub is like. It's got two rooms, and it's equally likely that your buddy is going to be in either one of those rooms. Here's the information you get. You walk into one of the rooms, you thoroughly check that room, and your buddy's not in there. New question. How likely is it now, having checked the first room, that your buddy's at the pub? Think for a second about your answer to that question. Second question I want you to think about. Here's the setup. In an effort to crack down on crime, a city installs a facial recognition software camera that sounds an alarm when it detects a registered offender's face. So the city that we're talking about, it's got 100,000 people in it. There are thought to be about 100 criminals on the loose. The system is such that it correctly identifies 99% of the criminals, and it incorrectly identifies 1% of the criminals, 1% of non-criminals. So, Let's say you get some information. You hear the alarm. How likely is it that it's been triggered by a criminal? Take a few seconds to think about it. You can jot down your answers if you want to. Bummer. That was the example. All right, so after you think about your answers to both of those, this is the correct way to get the answer. It's Bayes' theorem. Most of you are probably at least mildly familiar with it, along with a conditionalization rule that tells us that the updated probability of the hypothesis is equal to the prior probability of the hypothesis given the evidence that we've observed, Bayes' theorem tells us that then the probability of the hypothesis given the evidence that we've observed is equal to all of that mess. So. One thing that we could do is we could plug in the values for all of that. We could use a calculator to calculate it. But it's a bit of a thorny equation. And even people who work at least some of the time with Bayes' theorem forget the ordering of these terms on occasion. And more importantly, you'd need a calculator and the absolute values uh, of these terms if you wanted to come out with an answer. So. Let me introduce you to a lesser known, but I soon hope to be greater loved, formulation of Bayes' theorem. Call it the odds formulation. And what happens is that we take the prior probability of the hypothesis, and we're going to express it in odds. And we're going to combine it with an assessment of the strength 
of the evidence. So the first step that we're going to work on is making sure that we understand how to express the prior probability of the hypothesis in odds. The second step is that we're going to learn how to assess the strength of the evidence that we're getting. And then the third step will be to go ahead and update. I'm showing you this formula for two reasons. The first is that it is by far an easier way to update. And if you practice for just a bit, you're going to uh, end up being able to do it in your head. So most of you in your day-to-day -day reasoning lives won't actually be updating on the fly. Uh, so I'm sort of using it for another reason in addition. It's a really good tool to illustrate some of the common ways that we fail in responding properly to evidence. The reason that I think it's a nice tool is that it's a, it's a nice visual representation of the separation between the components. We've got, we've got the prior odds, and then we've got the strength of the evidence, which next we're going to see it's a comparison of uh, two values. And just those pieces together uh, end up getting us the new odds. And so if we can actually use this visual separation of the components uh, to remind ourselves of what the pieces are that we need in order to update properly, uh, I'm thinking that it will help us uh, stop making some of the most common updating errors that we make by really focusing us in on what the component pieces of information are. All right, so first thing I'm going to have you do uh, is just get a little bit of practice um, moving between uh, probability claims and odds. We're more used to hearing uh, claims about probability, uh, likelihoods expressed in fractions or decimals, as opposed to odds. But it is easy to move back and forth from fractions or percentages to odds. We just have to remind ourselves from middle school how to do it. So think about odds as a ratio of the true to the false and move from a quick example. So if I say that rain is 90% likely or that there's a 9 tenths chance of rain, I want you to be able to quickly express that in odds. Say that the odds of rain is 9 to 1. All right, so right now, just turn to someone else at your table uh, and talk them through. Uh, each one of these three move between percentage assessments to odds, or if I gave it to you in odds, go backwards to likelihood. So let's see, for the first one, we've got a 75% chance of rain. Somebody raise their hand. Tell me what that is in odds, you. Good. All right, second one, we've got a one in three chance the store is open. Somebody raise their hand. What is that in odds? Yes. Excellent, one to two odds that it's open. We start with six to five odds of being in group A. Somebody give that to me as a fraction. Yes. Good, both of you, six out of 11. All right, pretty easy to move back and forth between uh, likelihoods and odds. So let's move on to the next uh, example. Okay, so we're thinking now in terms of how to gauge the strength of evidence. This is step two in our uh, updating training, but it's also so important on its own. It's the money question, which is why I put those monies up on the screen. It would be better if they were all $100 bills because it's that much of a money question. Why is it the money question? Well, it's a way of reminding us to consider a piece of information about how we naturally a piece of information that the way that we naturally reason has set us up to neglect. Namely, how might things look if our hypothesis were actually false? What are the ways that you could still get the evidential information that you're getting, even if your considered view or explanation isn't right? So this is phrased as a comparison, a comparison of the probability of E given H to the probability of E given not H, and compare, you must do, you may not assume that you're getting evidence for your hypothesis just because 
you're noticing just what you would expect to notice if your explanation is right. So you must consider how likely it would be to observe this thing that you're observing, even if your hypothesis is false. So this question comparison is going to tell you whether or not the information that you're getting is actually evidence, and if so, how strong the evidence is. So if you divide these and you get a one out here, you're getting no evidence for or against H. If you get a number over one, you're getting evidence for H. Under one, you're getting evidence against H. The number that you get is often referred to as the Bayes factor. Some of you might have uh, heard it called that before. I'll usually refer to it more descriptively as the strength factor. So note that there are two components of the strength test. Sometimes you're actually going to be ballparking them independently. And sometimes you're going to have precise numerical inputs for those values. Other times, gauging the strength of the evidence is naturally comparative. So you might be thinking, how much likelier am I to observe this thing that I'm observing if H is true? as opposed to false, and maybe you're thinking, mm, I think I'm about 10 times likelier to get this information if H is true, as opposed to if it's false. So if that's the case, if you're comparing how likely they are, and you're thinking, oh, I think it's about 10 times likelier to get this if the hypothesis is true, well, you have a ready-made strength factor of 10 in that case. All right, so look through an example with me. Say you're wondering whether someone is into you, and you get some information. You're having a Halloween party, and you've invited them, and they show up early wearing a very elaborate costume. So you're thinking about whether this observation that you've just made, them showing up in this elaborate costume early, is evidence that they like you, and so you ask the question, how much likelier is it that they show up early wearing this costume, given that they like me, compared to given that they don't like me? And you're thinking, definitely likelier if they like me. So you know that you're getting some evidence, and you gauge that evidence to be, say, five times likelier than if they didn't like you. All right, so working through uh, this problem, Let's, let's walk through it together. I started at a one in four chance that they liked me. Uh, and so I want to think about that in terms of prior odds. Let's see. We can go ahead and write this out together. I conveniently wore an eraser. Um, all right, so my, I'm going to do prior odds times my strength factor. And that's going to tell me my new odds. So my prior odds. Um, I'm at a 1 in 4 chance, so I'm going to express that as 1 to 3 in odds. And then I'm thinking about my strength factor. And uh, I thought initially that if I got that information, it would be five times likelier. Uh, my odds, you know, here is where I'm starting with um, not like me. Here I'm, I'm uh, thinking about like me. Um, reverse. Um, and so the evidence that I get, I said that it was five times likelier to get that uh, if they did like me. So I'm asking myself which side of my odds is that supporting? And I say, yeah, it's definitely evidence that they like me as opposed to evidence that they don't like me. So I'm actually just going to apply it here. What I mean by that uh, is multiplying this side of my odds um, by my strength factor. And so when I multiply 5 by 1, uh, I end up at uh, odds of 5 to 3. Uh, if I wanted to go back and, and express that in terms of a fraction or in terms of probability, I would do 5 out of 8. So I moved from being 25% uh, confident uh, that they liked me prior probability and then got this information, and uh, updating makes me end up over 50% likely that uh, they like me. All right, so 
going back to our pub case. And in this example, we get an opportunity to actually plug in for the different components of our strength test. So here, um, let's think about prior odds of, uh, well, we have four to one um, because we had a prior probability of 80%. So 80% in prior odds is four to one. Uh, and then we want to figure out what our strength factor is. So we're going to compare the probability of the probability of the evidence given the hypothesis to the probability of the evidence given the negation of the hypothesis. And here's how I'll do that. My hypothesis, of course, is that uh, our buddy is in the pub. So I say, assume buddy's in the pub. How likely would it be for me to get the information that I, in fact, got? Namely, that I checked that room thoroughly and they're not in there. So if they're in the pub, I've checked half of the space in the pub. So the likelihood that I get that is 1 over 2, 50%, 1 half. All right. And then I'm going to compare that, divide that by the probability of the evidence given the negation of the hypothesis. Start right here. Say, assume that it's not the case that Buddy's in the pub. How likely would it be for me to get the evidence that I got, namely that I checked a room and they're not in there? Well, if they're not in the pub, it's guaranteed uh, that I would get that, 100%. So what I'm doing is I'm dividing 50% by 100%. I end up with a strength factor of 1 half. Now, 1 half, I was testing for the hypothesis. So I know that since it's a fraction, it's against the hypothesis. I could either do uh, the, uh, since these are, since h and not h are um, complementary, I could do uh, a strength factor of 2 for not h, or I could do uh, a strength factor of 1 half for h. So let me go ahead and uh, multiply the 1 half on the side um, of it. So uh, this is uh, pub, this is not pub. I'm getting uh, 1 half evidence against pub. All right, so when I multiply that, I end up with new odds of 2 to 1. If I want to express that as a likelihood or a fraction, I'm at 2 out of 3. All right, so that's how we use the odds formulation to update on pub example. What I want you guys to do now is uh, if you didn't quite know how to do criminal case, feel free to go back and use the odds formulation to do uh, the facial recognition case for um, criminal detection. If you feel like you got that one right away, go ahead and practice a new one, uh, the phone charge case. So take a few minutes. You can work through it on your own. If you get stuck, turn to someone at your table and see if you can work through this with them. All right, let me tell you how uh, I would actually think through it for the criminal case. Now, you know, these are pretty big numbers, and maybe I don't want a totally precise uh, answer. If I did want a totally precise answer, I'm going to be starting uh, with, let's see, it would be prior, uh, prior odds of um, uh, 100 to uh, 99,000, 9,900. What I'm actually going to do here um, is I'm going to say, okay, 100, 100,000, knock off uh, two zeros. So I'm thinking, okay, roughly the prior odds here, something like one to a 1,000. Then I'm going to think about the strength factor. And I'm going to think, okay, uh, assume that it is uh, a criminal. How likely is it to detect it? 99, assume it's not a criminal. How likely is it to detect it? Um, 1%. So I'm thinking, okay, strength factor of around 99. Great, I'm going to call it a strength factor of about 100. So I'm starting with 1 to 1,000 odds. I'm getting a strength factor of about 1,000, uh, about 100. I know that I'm going to apply that on the side of the criminal, 1 to 1,000. So I'm thinking, OK, I'm going to end up at roughly 100 to 1,000 odds. If I reduce that, uh, I'm going to be at basically 1 to 10. So that's not precise. Um, the precise answer, if I were doing it as a fraction and I had done the odds precisely, would actually be 99 out of 1,098 or approximately 9%. But see how easy it is 
to do just to ballpark how these numbers are working together to realize that you're starting at around a one to a thousand odds. You're getting a strength factor of about a hundred. It's supporting the side of the one, so you're ending up at roughly a hundred to a thousand, and that's a factor of ten. So you end up at roughly ten percent likely. A really easy thing to do in your head. So if we were going to show how exactly we would do the phone case, so let's see. It tells us that we are starting out 50-50. So I'm going to think of that as one-to-one -one prior odds. And then I get some evidence, um, namely that when I come home, the phone is still plugged in downstairs. And I'm told that that happens uh, roughly one, once a week. So when I'm thinking about what the strength factor is, well, I'm thinking about um, the probability of the evidence given uh, the hypothesis. Um, assume that uh, partner's already in bed. How likely would it be to see what I saw? Uh, assume partner's not in bed. Um, how likely would it be to see what I saw? Um, all right, so when I'm dividing that, I'm realizing I'm getting a, a strength factor of six for um, not in bed yet. So if I'm thinking of this as bed and this as not bed, well, I realize that I'm getting uh, evidence with a strength factor of six that I'm going to apply to the bedside. So I'm going to <laughs> bedside. I'm going to end up at odds of one to six. If I wanted to express that in terms of probability, I'm at a one seventh chance upon seeing the phone still plugged in that uh, that they have um, that they have gone to bed. So probably still up. All right, so um, those are our answers. Already went through them. And this is, think of this as a little chart that you can just run through to get some kind of benchmarks in your head. So uh, I'm thinking about starting with a, pro a prior probability that's pretty unlikely. That's why I put it in red. Maybe you're at one out of a thousand. And then think of getting some strong evidence, uh, a strength factor of a hundred. How does that work uh, against each other? Well, you're starting out really unlikely. You get some pretty strong evidence, and you end up with a likelihood of around 10%. Um, when I see numbers like that, it's just reminding me how important it is to take into account prior probability. Because when you get evidence with a strength factor of 100, that's a lot of evidence. But when you see how that interacts with something that has a quite low prior probability, where you end up as only 10% likely on the other side, you can really see the role that the prior probability is playing. Start with a prior probability of around uh, 1 out of 10. If you get a strength factor of decent evidence, strength factor of 10, um, what that does is it makes you even, uh, roughly 50% likely that your starting hypothesis is true. Start out 50-50. Get a little bit of evidence with a strength factor of three. What does that do? It gets you 75% likely. Start out 50-50. Get really strong evidence of 100. What does that do? It practically swamps. It practically guarantees a little bit under 100% that your hypothesis is true. All right, so the reason that I'm doing this is because I don't really think that what you guys are going to be doing after this is just uh, updating on the fly, uh, taking into account what your prior probabilities are, actually gauging the strength of your evidence, actually updating and uh, spitting out your new probability. But what it does for me is it just gives me a couple of sort of stock examples to remind myself how prior probability and strength of evidence are interacting in order to get me closer. So the interesting cases, what we see uh, when we're looking at how people generally do in these cases, well, what happens is that people are way off. It's not that they're close but don't know precisely how to do it. It's usually that they end up forgetting a component entirely. So what goes on in uh, the initial pub case? Well, I've taught this example a lot to students. And it's, it's roughly 2% of students that are getting the right answer. So the most common answer that I get is 
that they continue to think it's 80% likely that uh, the person is in the pub. Uh, so that person is just not updating on new information at all. They, stuck, they saw the prior and they're just like, well, it could still be true. We haven't eliminated the possibility that it's true. Uh, when we look in one room, you told me it was 80%, so I'm just going to remain 80% likely. Uh, that person has just failed to update as they get more and more information. You can imagine them uh, checking a space where they only have a little bit of space left. Are they still going to remain 80% confident the way they started uh, as they get that information? No, we want to respond dynamically. We want to, as we get new information, incorporate that. And the weird thing that we see uh, in terms of something like neglecting uh, the base rate, where we just look at something like the evidence that we're getting, is it happens to even pro professionals. It's happening to doctors in medical systems, where if you see that something has um, a, a test rate of correctly identifying 99% of cases, in uh, correctly identifying 1% of cases, uh, what ends up happening uh, if you start one out of a thousand likely and you get a positive test, even doctors are very often getting uh, the result that it's 99% likely upon getting that test positive that you've got the disease. This is nuts. It's really good indication of just how naturally bad we are uh, at doing this. So if we can just get in the habit of reminding ourselves um, that we've got all three of these components. We've got the prior odds. It's separate from the assessment of the strength. And the assessment of the strength ne necessarily has to take into account both the numerator and the denominator of this, even when it is delivered to us as a kind of comparison. So what we want to do is we want to make sure in each case that we've properly taken into, into account all of these uh, components. And so what we're going to do next is I'm going to run you through some common kinds of reasoning. And I want you to think about what, if anything, you think is going wrong in these cases. All right, so first case. The scenario is that after a school year uh, in which the average number of absences per student is higher than usual, superintendent institutes a policy in which students lose recreation periods when they exceed the allowed number of absences. This is what happens. The following year, the average number of absences per student dropped significantly. Superintendent concludes this is strong evidence that the policy works. All right, so I want you to keep in mind the things that we've learned, how the strength test for evidence works, uh, think about this policy and talk with the people at your table about what, if anything, you think might have gone wrong in this kind of reasoning, uh, taking into account what the superintendent's conclusion was. So take just a minute to turn to your table, see what's going wrong here. We're thinking about the superintendent getting that information that there's a significant drop and the concluding that there's uh, some strong evidence uh, that the policy was effective. All right, what's going wrong here? How can we use our strength test to pinpoint exactly what it is? Well, first thing, we know how to determine whether or not there's evidence. We need to compare these values, right? And so looks like what the superintendent is doing is saying, okay, assume that, as she expected, the the policy is effective. What would she expect to see? Well, she instituted it in order to see a significant drop. It's exactly what she expects to see. Uh, and so she's thinking, yeah, good probability of evidence given the hypothesis. Exactly what I was uh, expecting to see. Concludes, strong evidence. And we say, no, no, you do not know whether you have any evidence, because to know whether you have evidence, you must necessarily compare it to the probability of the evidence given the negation of the hypothesis. So what we want her to do is we want to say, OK, assume that, in fact, your uh, policy was not effective. Uh, how likely is it that you could observe the thing that we, in fact, observed? And what I'm thinking is that 
Uh, in fact, it's pretty likely that we could observe that significant uh, drop, even if her policy wasn't effective. Okay, why? Well, in particular, uh, I'm thinking that she should worry about something like regression to the mean. So why did she institute the policy to begin with? Presumably because the problem had gotten unusually bad. And so, you know, if you're starting at a point where uh, the problem is pretty bad, what should you expect to see uh, the next year? Well, probably you're going to see it improve some anyway. So uh, an improvement in the, in, in the numbers the following year is exactly what she should expect to see due to regression to the mean, even if her policy uh, isn't effective. And I'm also thinking about problems like, what if in response to the same information that the superintendent is picking up on, parents, say, are cracking down on uh, their kids about attendance? Okay, so th that's another explanation of how, we could, how it could come about that we're seeing exactly the evidence that we're seeing, but that it's not, in fact, evidence specifically for the hypothesis. Uh, it could be a reason that's just as good to believe some competing hypothesis. So what would actually happen numerically here is that, yeah, we're going to get a high number for the probability of the evidence given uh, the hypothesis. But the problem is it seems um, maybe even just as likely, uh, but minimally, plenty of reason to think that this number is also going to be high. If it's just as likely, we're not going to get a number greater than one out of this, meaning that we're not even getting any evidence. Um, and minimally, we're going to get a small amount of evidence out if there are plenty of ways that we could observe not H, even uh, if that evidence, uh, even, sorry, plenty of ways that we could observe the evidence even if not H um, was true. All right, so boiling this down to a kind of problem that we want to be on the lookout for. Uh, call this problem one-sided strength testing. And one-sided strength testing is happening when you're only considering the likelihood of observing the evidence if the hypothesis is true, but you're not thinking about uh, the probability of the evidence if the hypothesis is false. So how to detect it, how to be on the lookout for it? Well, when you're expecting a certain result and you end up observing that result, exactly what you were expecting, it'll feel like you're getting even more evidence for your view, for your candidate explanation, your hypothesis. And so what ends up actually happening is we just keep sort of ratcheting up uh, our confidence in response to the evidence that we are anticipating getting, being on the lookout for it, spotting it, and assuming that it's the kind of information that should increase our hypothesis further. So what should you be doing in response? A couple of questions that really help address this kind of problem. Remind yourself to ask, might things still look like this? Might I have still gotten this information, even if the hypothesis isn't true? Try to channel what someone with the opposite view, as you have, would say about the evidence. If someone didn't believe um, that H was true, if that person observed the same evidence that you observed, how would they explain it? So you started out confident that you were getting evidence that should increase the likelihood of H. But if there are other views that account for H just as well, then it's just not going to be evidence. Uh, for H. And sometimes what's going to happen when you ask yourself uh, this question, you might end up discovering that there are views that explain the information that you got even better than your view. All right, next scenario I want you to think about. The day after the notorious Halloween party, you text your potential someone, and by that night you haven't received a reply. So you remind yourself that it was a real rager, and so you take it as no evidence that they're not interested when you fail to get that reply, because you think they're probably just sleeping it off. All right, I want you to think about this way of responding to that information. Again, think about uh, what we know about the strength test for, for evidence. Talk with the people uh, at your table about whether that kind of reasoning is OK. Take 60 seconds to do that.
Okay, so we're thinking this way. When you get evidence, what it means to be evidence is to be uh, something that ought to increase your confidence in the hypothesis. And we know that we determine whether there's evidence by comparing these two values, uh, the likelihood to observe what we observed uh, if the hypothesis is true as compared to whether it's false. So this person is dismissing what we should take to be evidence uh, against the hypothesis that they like you. Why? Well, assume that they in fact like you. How likely would it be for them to text back when you text the next day? Well, minimally, we think it's going to definitely be likelier than that they don't text back uh, when you text the next day. And so as long as this value is at least some bigger than this value, it means that you are uh, getting evidence. So if our hypothesis in this case is that they like you, this value is going to be bigger. We're going to end up with a fraction. So we're ev getting evidence for the negation of the hypothesis. All right, so what we're often inclined to do is we're inclined to do something like uh, consistency testing to see whether an observation could uh, be true and that our hypothesis remains true, hasn't been falsified by the observation uh, of that information. So call this problem when we don't update at all uh, in response to the fact that actually we have gotten evidence. Call this problem, uh, this comes from economist uh, Brian Kaplan, heads I win, tails were even reasoning. Here's how we often operate. Instead of treating all of our beliefs as degrees of confidence, we think about something like thresholds required to have enough support to count as believing or enough evidence uh, against to count as disbelieving. But then what happens if we're in that kind of binary threshold mentality, when little bits of evidence come in, we're inclined to just ask whether it's enough to push us over the precipice to say disbelieving. Um, and if it's not, then we just end up ignoring that evidence entirely. And of course, the real problem is that depending on how we feel about the hypothesis, uh, that is going to determine different levels where that threshold exists. So it turns out being that for hypothesis that we prefer, say we already have that view, we're in some sense maybe even kind of subconsciously rooting for that view to be true. We ask a much more permissive question when uh, disconfirming information shows up. We, we ask something like, can I still believe my hypothesis? And if we think, yeah, uh, the evidence is still consistent with my hypothesis being true, what happens is we just end up disregarding the evidence and not updating at all. So it's feeling like, um, well, you know, this evidence that I've gotten, it's not, uh, it's not the case that it necessarily disconfirms my hypothesis. My hypothesis could still be true, so I remain exactly as confident. This is the remedy. This is what I want you to do in response to this kind of feeling. I want you to think about something that is called the opposite evidence rule. So mathematically, we can show that if E increases the likelihood of H, then not E must decrease the likelihood uh, of H. You don't have to know exactly why this is true, but just remember the rule that if you treat some piece of information, some observation E as evidence for H, then learning the opposite of that information, experiencing not E, has to be at least a little bit of evidence for not H. Uh, so ask yourself, if your potential someone had texted right back saying that they'd had a great time, would you have treated that as evidence that they're into you? Uh, if so, and I think definitely we would have, then you must take into account how you would respond 
uh, to that op how you should respond to that opposite evidence. So if getting an affirmative text response is E4H, well, failing to get that response has to be at least some evidence against H. What do we know when we're getting some evidence against H? Well, we need to decrease our confidence in H at least a little bit. So notice that for these numbers, we haven't, uh, we haven't put in any kind of numerical precision. So we don't know exactly how much uh, evidence we're getting because we didn't consider that comparison to begin with. But the opposite evidence rule can often really confirm if you try on for size, having the opposite evidential experience, and you know right away that you would have responded uh, uh, the opposite way, well, you need to uh, understand that you're getting at least some uh, evidence against your hypothesis. All right, next scenario that I want you to think about. You've been wanting to track down your long-separated biological sibling. One day you run into someone at the airport who shares a striking number of traits with your sibling. She's about the right age, about the right build. She's got curly hair and has facial vitiligo. You reason the likelihood of having all of these features, if it isn't her, is only around one in 100,000. So you say, wow. Given how unlikely that is, it'd be super unlikely for, for me to see someone like this at the airport if it wasn't her. Maybe only one in a 100,000, you're thinking. All right, so think about somebody reasoning this way. Take a second, talk to people at your table, and ask what, if anything, of course, trick is always something. Um, ask the people at your table, um, what do you think is going wrong in this scenario? So. Here, what's going on? You, uh, you know, you're, you're maybe what you've done is you've multiplied out uh, all of the likelihoods of those traits to come up with uh, the very tiny likelihood that somebody has uh, all of them. And so you're thinking, oh, the probability um, that uh, they have all of those if it's not, in fact, her. You know, you're thinking about this probability of evidence given the hypothesis being really, really low. And then you think, okay, assuming it his, is her, how likely uh, would it be to look like that? And you're like, yeah, really likely. Um, and so what happens when you're comparing these values, and this one is high, and this one's uh, really, really low, what you're noticing is that you're getting a ton of evidence. What happens when we get a ton of evidence? Well, if you get really strong evidence for something, then you're likely to think, hypothesis has got to be true. Uh, and so what's happening is we're just thinking about uh, the strength of the evidence without having taken into account uh, the prior probability. And this in particular is why we should worry. Uh, think just about the population of the US. Well, if it's around 330 million, uh, how many uh, sets of 100,000 in there, well, there's going to end up being over 3,000, 3,300 uh, people that look roughly like that in a population of 330 million. So um, what has happened is that in neglecting the base rate and failing to take into account uh, the prior probability of someone looking roughly like that person that you saw, uh, you end up just focusing on the massive amount of evidence that you think that you're getting um, and uh, fail to recognize that actually maybe it's something like uh, a one in over 3,000 3, chance. All right, so if we get a lot of evidence and we move directly to H without having considered uh, the prior, prior probability, you've probably heard the phrase neglecting the base rate, Remedy, don't do that. Don't neglect the base rate. Um, notice that we're inclined to actually make a kind of similar error in statistics sometimes. So notice that the denominator of the strength test um, is actually the p-value, if you're familiar uh, with that term from statistics. So the probability of observing data at least uh, that extreme if the null hypothesis is true. And what we do often see uh, in, in uh, statistics, even with people who are fairly well-versed, is that people are inclined to move from a highly uh, significant result or a low p-value to the automatic assumption that their hypothesis is true. 
but the p-value hasn't factored in the prior probability of that hypothesis. So note that um, we need to take into account, once again, all of those pieces of information before we conclude uh, how likely. All right, so what I want to do is uh, take a few minutes to um, uh, sum up what I think some of the upshots of updating uh, this way are. Um, and I'll also take uh, questions at the end. I'm told that we can stick on in this room a little bit longer if you do have questions. So I'm thinking that the two uh, major uh, upshots of thinking about uh, updating with the odds formulation in this way. The first I'm going to say is that it helps us inhabit the degreed perspective. We'll say a little bit more about that in a second. The second is that it's combating our, unfortunately, very natural tendency towards confirmation bias. All right, so putting, putting together the upshots of thinking about this way. Uh, the first, that it's getting us to inhabit the degreed perspective. So we should be thinking in terms of degrees of confidence anyway. It's really rare that our evidence justifies all-out belief or disbelief. So in one way, it's helping us avoid overconfidence to think explicitly in terms of our confidence level that a given claim or view that we're considering is true or false. And when we do that and no longer are thinking of uh, how much evidence would be required to push us over the precipice from, say, belief to disbelief or the reverse, we're likely to take into account all of the evidence. We want to be updating incrementally on all of the new evidence that we get. Why? Well, because small amounts of evidence add up. And if we keep ignoring little bits of evidence that wouldn't be enough to shift us over to the opposite of the belief that we currently hold, um, it means that we can't sort of slowly amass enough considerations against our view to eventually change our beliefs. So we want to know that we are routinely responding even to the small amounts of uh, evidence that, uh, that could eventually collectively change our belief. And then the next thought. Um, most of you have heard of confirmation bias. We're naturally inclined to notice or take seriously information that supports what we already believe, inclined to fail or notice, fail to notice or dismiss entirely information that goes against what we already believe. These strategies of focusing us in on both components of the strength test are ways broadly of doing something that we might call considering the opposite in a way that we rarely naturally do. So asking how people with the opposite view would respond to the evidence that you got. Asking how we would have responded to having gotten the opposite evidence. So in fact, studies show that although almost no amount of prompting people to just really consider the evidence carefully or Make sure to be as fair or as unbiased as you can. Helps to mitigate our massive natural tendency towards um, uh, confirmation bias. It turns out that getting people to ask these questions, getting people to think about how a proponent of the opposite view would have responded or how they would have responded to getting the opposite evidence, it does turn out to significantly help. So getting people to actively engage in the kind of mindset where you are habitually uh, asking those questions. That turns out to be uh, highly effective. So uh, what we want to do is we want to remember these things, that the prior probability is separate from, must be decoupled from, our assessment, independent assessment of the strength of the evidence, and that when we are assessing the strength of the evidence, that we need to take into account not just uh, how likely it would be to observe the thing that we're observing if our uh, view is right. But importantly, that one, how likely we might be to observe it even if uh, our view is not right. So thinking about uh, those components 
uh, separately and actually getting, getting yourself to think through those questions. Uh, best way I think we know of at this point uh, to uh, get yourself to respond more rationally to new information. All right, that's it. Uh, happy to take as many questions uh, as there are. So feel free to run out if you've got someplace else to be. And otherwise, I'll stick around and uh, answer some questions. Thank you so much for showing up. So you mentioned the uh, opposite evidence rule. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of when people say evidence of, or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Uh, it seemed conflicting to that. Is there some nuance there, or are they wrong, the people that say that? Absence. Uh, so failing to get any evidence um, is not uh, evidence that, um, basically, that evidence doesn't exist. Yeah. So one thing that I would want to say uh, about that is that um, we're set up antecedently to spot uh, particular uh, pieces of evidence. Uh, call this something like selective noticing. And uh, we're set up antecedently to be way more inclined to miss other pieces um, of evidence. And so um, if we know that uh, you know, the way that our um, brains are naturally going to be um, on the lookout for some evidence and inclined to miss the kinds of pieces that would be evidence were we to consider them, but in fact will be way less likely to notice them given that they're not fitting as well with the hypothesis that we already have, um, then uh, that's, that's a nice way of fleshing out why uh, it is that you know, it's not great information that you know, that conflicting evidence uh, doesn't in fact exist. So yeah, you know, just thinking about different kinds of um, views that I might have. And if I think that there are things that fit particularly well that would look a certain way with that view, but I just have really failed to consider like how things would look um, if that view isn't true, well, you know, those things um, are potential pieces of evidence and I'm just um, missing them. Uh, so um, I, think, I think that's an, a nice way of, of thinking about it, you know, just in terms of which pieces of ev evidence I'm inclined to bump up against. Yeah. So you mentioned how the, the p value is only sort of one part of the trigger. Mm -hmm. uh, but typically, the p value have taken to sort of be uh, sort of absolute evidence of whether yeah. very strong evidence of whether you should believe something or not. Do you have uh -huh. any like thoughts on how, well, given this updating formula, we should respond to scientific evidence? Yeah. So um, lots lots to say about um, p values. So. One thing uh, is that, you know, depending on what the prior probability of the hypothesis is, um, you know, if it was decently high and we end up getting a p-value, a statistically significant result with, you know, a, a p-value that's quite low, what is, what is that meaning? Well, it is meaning that, we're, you know, we're getting a lot of evidence. And so if the prior probability wasn't terribly low, which I think often in scientific te testing cases, um, that is the case. Well, we might be we might be getting really really strong uh, evidence to believe the truth of the hypothesis. But it's also the case that we can't assume that at the out. Yeah. So some of the time we're going to be in cases where um, you know we actually it's very hard for us to even gauge the prior probability uh, of the hypothesis. And if it's the, the case where actually you know it wasn't fairly um, it wasn't all that likely to begin with, then you know even a fairly low p value. We should be pretty worried. The other thing is that you know what p-values are telling us, uh, the probability uh, that we get this result um, uh, given the truth of the null hypothesis. Well, you probably already know this because you're asking, asking this question in particular. But um, let's say that we have a standard p-value of 0.05. Well, that's telling us that roughly there's a 5% chance that we're going to um, get this evidence, you know, even if uh, not H is true. But think about the way science is done, right? And we've got this kind of background scenario in which scientific results are likelier to get published if they are surprising, if they're counterintuitive. Well, what does that kind of background do 
Well, if we're not being a good scientist who is pre-registering uh, pre all of our trials, we end up in a kind of situation where, um, well, let's say 20 trials have been done. Um, if it's way likelier to have uh, published like the surprising results or strong, uh, strong positive confirmation results and to have just, you know, filed away the ones that, uh, you know, come out as not significant, um, or aren't very surprising. Well, then it makes it a whole lot likelier, um, that the ones that we bump up against in scientific literature are in that 5% chance. Um, and so that, you know, uh, if I don't know anything about what the methodology is with, say, pre-registration um, of, uh, you know, hypothesis and trials and whatnot, and I don't feel like I have a good sense of if uh, I have, uh, if I'm able to tell whether there have been uh, lots of negative results that I haven't heard about, well, I'm going to be really worried about something uh, that uh, is clearing the bar 